Welcome, listeners, to the BHL Podcast Series. I'm your host, Scott Heitner. Today I have with me my co-host, Travis Grauerholtz, and it is our honor and our pleasure to have as our guest from the 95th House District, House Minority Leader Tom Sawyer. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I look Absolutely. forward to it. Absolutely. We, uh, we've got uh, on the BHL podcast, we always like to make a, a loop of all the folks in legislative leadership, and we've looked forward to having you come in to, uh, to be part of this for a long time. Uh, well, we always start these podcasts with our guests at the beginning. We're we're visiting with folks who are you know involved in public policy today and may have a public profile that a lot of people know. But we like to talk about uh, the formative years and what shaped you into to where you are today. So. Tell us a little bit about uh, your childhood. Were you a native Kansan? Where'd you grow up and go to school? What filled your your wayward time as a as a teen? You know, jobs, hobbies, sports, girls, whatever it may have been. Uh, give us give us the All background. Right. Well, I was born in Wichita, St. Joseph's Hospital, right there in South Wichita. Uh, most I grew up in Wichita, though I went to junior high and high school in Omaha. But even those years. My parents would always send me back to Wichita in the summer. I'd spent the summers with my grandparents, so it seems like I've spent my whole life in Wichita, really. Um, when I, I was one of those kids, for some reason I was born, I, I always felt like I should you know, like major in math or accounting or something because I just kind of was born knowing numbers and money. I could, you know, my mom would actually send me to the grocery store when I was three years old. Oh my God. Cause wow. I understood. Yeah. I mean, with money, just with, with money. Oh yeah. Well, cause I knew money and <laughs> could do it. She'd go, you know, go get milk or something. My mom didn't drive at the time. And, uh, so yeah, I would, uh, come, come back with, that's wild. Yeah. You didn't come back the, with a bunch of candy and well, cheese. No, no, and three, three-year-old yeah. me definitely would have come yeah. back. Here, no. here, Travis, go buy some, some food at the grocery store. Yeah. I mean, I'd, soda and sweets is what I would come back with. I'd be sent right back. Yeah. A bunch no. of big league chew. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, uh, you know, I, so I always knew the value of money. and uh, was always I was the oldest, so I was always kind of res- more responsible. I had four sisters that were all younger. And... Uh, then when I was five, I started my own store in my room. Um, I started selling. I, I actually, it's funny because you mentioned candy. As a kid, I didn't really, I think because we didn't really have sweets. You know, we didn't have dessert growing up and stuff. So I never really cared much for candy. And it wasn't anything that was big to me. So like Halloween, I would actually map out, start early, and try to go as many houses as I could. So I'd get, I would get as much candy as possible. And then I would sell it all in my store. Um, and I, I, I would also I would go to the grocery store and buy like big bags of cinnamon balls or something, and then sell them for a penny a piece. So I figured out the profit margins and you know. oh my gosh! And it, my dad used to like to read books a lot, and so I would sell his old books. And one of the stories my dad liked to tell one time was, you know, so I always gave him a certain percentage of the money because they're his books, right? Well, one day a guy came in and bought money, and I had to give him a bunch of change. So when Dad said, "Well, it's my share," and I said, "Well, I'm sorry, Dad, but um, that change I gave back that was your share." I had to give. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> he used to love telling that story. Um, but for over several years, I had a store, and then I would also, you know, in the summertime, would have lemonade stands and Kool Aid stands. Uh, and the other thing 
I did. When I was five, somebody in the neighborhood did a backyard carnival. And so I decided I'm going to start doing that. So at the age of five, it was the first year. Every summer, we'd always have, you know, kind of a carnival in the yard. And I'd raise money that way, too. So we'd have a neat haunted house. I got the the album, the music album from the haunted house at Disneyland. So we'd have that music going and uh, uh, decorate the garage and uh, it was always pretty successful. It made several hundred dollars on those. Uh, Tell everybody they couldn't jump up and down lest they skip the record. <laughs> <laughs> the no, soundtrack. No, you don't have to worry about that. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, so I was always a young entrepreneur. Um, sold Christmas cards at Christmas time. You go door to door, make quite a bit of money doing that. Um, and boy, I, I was in Cub Scouts, and they had a magazine called Boys Life. That's where I find a lot of this stuff that you could sell. They always had these things in there to sell greeting cards and different things and. So I'd find stuff to sell. And, um, so I started at a very young age as an entrepreneur, making money. So I always had plenty of my own money. In fact, sometimes, this is my dad's still a story, sometimes they actually have to borrow money from me. So <laughs> things would be tight. Um, that, that, that extra portion of share just increased a little bit, yeah, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's hilarious. I never knew that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. This is my 21st year working with you in the sessions and, and no clue. Uh, that's impressive. Yeah, so I became a business owner at five, actually, and <laughs> pretty much my whole life have been. Um, and a middleman at three, as yeah, your mom yeah. would send you down yeah. to the... Yeah. That's hilarious. The grocery store thing, all I can hear in my head, what's the Sesame Street shtick or whatever, the got to remember, like, loaf of bread, stick of butter, yeah. gallon of milk... Uh, ah, that's too funny. So did you ever do a quote unquote traditional high school job where you got a, you know, paycheck and they I, took I taxes d- out? I did for a little bit. I worked at a, uh, uh, Taco Grande, um, kind of raised a little extra money, but for the most part, no, I did. I kind of had my own that's awesome. stuff on the sides all the time. That is so cool. So, uh, in Wichita, at least for the summers all the way through the end of high school. Yeah. And then what? Well, college, it's funny when it's time to go to college, uh, I went to Wichita State, so, um, and I, I lived with my grandparents while I was going to school, uh, so it got down on cost, um, and I majored as an accountant, because that's, I always kind of figured, uh, that's what I wanted to be, and I had a lot of interest in high school and the counting classes, and, and like I said, I was always really good in math, um, uh, so that seemed like the thing I wanted to do, but while I was on campus, I will, um, it was... I was only there a few days, and there was somebody there holding a big sign of a big peanut. It was for Jimmy Carter running for president. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I started doing a little bit of volunteering on the Carter campaign, and then there was this young guy on the school board named Dan Glickman that was running for Congress against an 18-year incumbent. And so I got interested in that campaign. So I started working on Dan Glickman's campaign in my free time. And... Uh, Lo and behold, I mean, my start in politics, if they both lost, I don't know what I have. I might not have ever had much more interest in politics, but they both won. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter at the presidential level, but Dan Glickman had knocked off a, eight, a guy named Garner Shriver who had been there and was considered unbeatable. And uh, so it kind of got my interest in, in the politics going. But I'd also, I also had some interest back. I, I Martin Luther King, you know, when I was a kid uh, – Living in the '60s, I mean, Martin Luther King had a lot of effect on me. Civil rights movement, uh, and then Robert Kennedy was somebody I really liked, and uh, 
I remember Bond as a kid. I was 10 when he was shot. I just couldn't believe it. He was assassinated. But uh, So that was my first interest in politics really came from Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. But, yeah, and uh, RFK more than JFK. RFK more than JFK. I do remember, I, I was only five when JFK was um, assassinated. I do remember that. I, I was actually walking home from kindergarten and I got home. And the thing I remember most, I tell people this, is how all the adults were so sad. Yeah. I mean, that was a thing in my life that really, as a five-year-old, I'm like, everybody's so sad. You yeah. Know? Um, uh, but RFK really, I was a little bit older then, and RFK really did have a lot of effect on me. So that's yeah. so that's where my interest in politics kind of came in, in terms of wanting to do some public good. But I still, like on some of my majors was accounting. I didn't really see myself being a politician. But while I was in college, it was interesting. Uh, so I worked on those campaigns. Well, there was an, another woman down there, a woman named Nancy Orpesa, that um, was uh, – were helping on the campaigns and and she was like uh and she asked what i did and i said and actually that i had a mail order business at the time i, I, I was selling stuff through mail uh and actually doing pretty well um but she's like well you know you ought to get a job in the courthouse and because uh, she knew the county clerk and i and i thought about i said well you know that wouldn't be bad to have a study job like that while i was going to school so i started off working in the county clerk's office, part-time office assistant, go to school full-time. Well, I quickly moved up to administrative assistant in the office and then chief deputy clerk. So it kind of switched. I started working full-time in the courthouse and going to school part-time. Uh, and I did eventually get my accounting degree from Wichita State, but it took a little longer. Uh, but, but that's what really got me into actual I mean, politics. And, and I was, it was really funny. I was actually a pretty nonpartisan person in, in the courthouse. And I remember uh, some people, because a lot of the offices, our office was Democrats, but there were offices that had Republicans. And I remember uh, years later when I actually ran for county clerk and stuff, people were surprised I was a Democrat even. And I'm like, why wouldn't you think I was a Democrat? We're in a Democratic office. Right. But, but I always just seemed so nonpartisan to people. I worked with people. They didn't really yeah. think of me that way. So I always thought that was kind of interesting. And that may have answered my next question, which was going to be, you know, post-school, what, uh, what was your career path prior to elected office but it sounds like you really found your path before you finished school i did and for reasons not that you didn't use some of your education skills or skills that you got with that education but largely independent of your you know your major or your whatever it was although i tell you what the the county skills helped a lot when a county clerk uh officer you set the mill levies you do a lot of stuff with taxes and stuff that it did really help a lot but yeah, yeah it, it was kind of, it was kind of separate interesting yeah well, uh yeah well that's yeah that's awesome i can tell you as somebody that had no stinking clue what i was going to do after i graduated i'm envious of the guy that, yeah. that uh yeah got into it before you even graduated yeah that's I, awesome i did but i tell you my interest in the legislature came while i was in the clerk's office at that uh our county treasurer at the time was a woman named Jerry Threffle, who was a Republican, but we, we got along really well. It, you know, clerks and treasurers have to work well together. Um, and uh, so at the time, we used to pay your property taxes on your car the same time you did your house, like December and, and May or June. Um, it wasn't tied to when you got your tag. Well, administratively, it worked a whole lot better if people paid their taxes when they got their tag. It gave us a lot more leverage. So we had a bill. Uh, we got legislators to introduce a bill uh, called the Tax and Tag Bill. Uh, it was House Bill 2605. And uh, so we go to Topeka. The, the bill's going to have a hearing in the tax committee. So Jerry Threffle and I drive up there together. 
and a lot of other county clerks and treasurers from around the state. So we're sitting there in this tax committee room, mm-hmm. and uh, the well, that what I noticed, a lot of them weren't even, it seemed like they were paying attention, but <laughs> but <laughs> what we were saying. But then once we do the presentation, they start asking questions. That it they were asking the stupidest questions. I'm like, they these guys. <laughs> Don't understand what we do. It's like how in the world are they making laws? How are, you know because you know when you're in the courthouse, everything you do is by state statute. You know everything you're, you know you're following those statutes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, these are the people writing these things. They don't even. It's like it's, it, made, it made more sense to me why some of the stuff didn't make sense. You know, some right. of the statutes didn't fit real you well. Truly, were watching sausage being made. Yeah, and, watching sausage being made, yeah. and I'm like, oh my gosh, I I can do better than any of these people. So. <laughs> They need somebody up here who knows what they're doing. So it was kind of interesting. So that was my – till then, I really had no interest in the legislature. I didn't really pay attention to the legislature, didn't know. But all of a sudden, the legislature was on my radar. It was like, okay, that, need, that place needs fixing. You know, it was kind of my attitude at the time. And you were how, old, how old at that time? I would have been probably 23. <laughs> but I'd worked in the courthouse for you know, four right. years you know, at that point. Um, so – uh, yeah, I do. You know, you're young. You kind of, right. you know, I'm kind of like these, you know, these people. Oh yeah, I can uh, I can come up and fix all these things. I can fix all these things. So then, a couple of years later, when my uh, incumbent legislator decided to retire, he came to me and asked me if I was interested in running, and I'm like, sure. We need somebody up there who knows what's going on and what they're doing. So that was my motivation for running the legislature. So I ran in 1986, won, and uh, you know. Been there on and off ever since. Just in case we have any seasoned veterans listening, who was the legislator that recruited you that you replaced? Homer Jarko was his name. Homer Jarko. He was actually somebody who was considered a, a whiz on taxes. Mm-hmm. He was big on the tax committee. So it kind of fit in. We both had a lot of interest in taxes. I think that's why he had interest in me, because he knew my work at the county clerk's office and uh, knew that I also had a lot of interest in taxes, and so he figured I'd be a good replacement for him. Well, that's a pretty good segue. The next thing I was going to ask you was, so let's go through a chronology of your career as an elected <laughs> official, or, or at least in public service in one spot or another. And I've got some of this down, but uh, frankly, there's such volume, I bet I'll miss some of it. So from 84 to 85, you were the Sedgwick County Clerk? Yeah. I actually start, I started working in the clerk's office in 78. Okay. Started as office assistant, then administrative assistant, then chief deputy, and then 84, I was a county clerk. Um, but also during that same time period, I got a little more interest in what was happening at the city. The, the city, which I said, these organiz, this organization called Citizen Participation Organization, and they were elected, they were actually elected people that gave advice to the city council. And uh, so while I was in the, while I was working at the courthouse, I ran for my CPO council, and I finished first actually. Um, uh, so I served a little bit of time on there too to get to know the city, and it was actually very, uh, it's actually a very uh, good experience because you know you spend a lot of time looking at the city budget, and so I got to kind of understand how the city budgets worked, and um, so it was really a good background. And actually, at the time period when I came to the legislature, there were several legislators who started off on CPO councils. It was kind of a a, a good. Uh, a building ground for people that want to run for other offices. Mm-hmm. But that, uh, you know, the common path is for folks to hold local offices for a while and then come up the right. state. But you, 84 and 85, as a Sedgwick County clerk after time in the clerk's office, uh, elected in 86, come up in 87, served through 98, mm-hmm. uh, four years off. 
Yeah, and, I, and the reason I left at 98 is I ran for governor. Right. Um, the uh, it was this weird situation. Bill Gray's was the incumbent governor. And actually, I was minority at the time. But Bill and I had a great relationship. In fact, we talked every day. Uh, I mean, we uh, uh, got on extremely well. So it was very odd that I'd end up running against him for yeah. for governor. <laughs> but but the situation was the Democrats. We had nobody had filed except I say that no real candidate. Fred Phelps had filed. Fred Phelps had filed as a Democrat for governor. And if we didn't get a candidate, he was going to be our nominee. So, you know, I kept thinking, you know, we had, at the time we had 10 Democrats in the Senate, that one of them would eventually do it because it was midterm. They would have to give up their seat. They can run. And Anthony Hensley was actually a minority leader at the time in the Senate. And he looked at it pretty hard but decided not to. And... Uh, None of the others would do it. So I remember the Friday, finally it was Monday, and Friday we're on this phone conversation, and none of them are doing it. And I, I, I just said, look, if none of you do I'm just going to do it. We can't let Fred Phelps. So I was still hopeful over the weekend one of them would come, but they didn't. So yeah. on Monday, the filing deadline, I went down and filed for governor, <laughs> uh, just so Fred Phelps would not be our candidate. And, uh, uh, and actually, the same time I did that, a guy at Topeka who just died recently, I did mention, Dan Likens actually filed for attorney general well because Fred Phelps Jr. had filed for attorney general. So he, we would have had Fred Phelps Jr. as our attorney general candidate, Fred Phelps Sr. as our gubernatorial candidate. Wow. So Dan Likens and I saved the party from having that, so, <laughs> that problem. Well, but, and interestingly enough, Governor Graves is a former guest of this podcast. Oh, yeah. It, it, Governor Graves is a great guy. He's probably the most congenial governor's race ever what's now he had a primary too he had a guy named david miller mm-hmm. right running U- the primary Eudora, right from eudora yeah. so he had a tough i mean he had a kind of vicious primary but once the primary was over he and i had probably the, it was probably the most congenial our debates were great everything was pretty congenial race because we liked each other so much so. yeah yeah that's awesome boy that uh Sounds pretty good these days, doesn't it? To yeah. have two candidates that actually <laughs> yeah. treat each other well and yeah, very uh, different. Um, well, so that brings us. You come back to the house in '03. Yep. From '03 to '09. And I'll tell you what happened is the, the woman who took my place, Melanie Barnes. Her job had changed to where she couldn't do it anymore. So she came to me and said, uh, "Would you run again?" Well, I was actually state party chair at the time, so I'm kind of like, "Well, it's kind of my obligation by candidate." So I said, "Yeah, I would. I, I would come back." So and that is what uh, the, uh, listeners, astute listeners, will notice. There was a four year gap, and that was the that yeah. Was those the four years, I was state party chair. Very good. So she came. Melody came back to you and said, "Do you want to run for the seat again?" You yep. said, "Sure." Back in '03 to '09. Yep. And then another exit. Yeah, in 09, Governor Parkinson came in and asked me if I wanted to be on the parole board. And my initial reaction was kind of like, well, I don't – that just was nothing on my radar, really, you know. Um, but the more I looked into it, I said, yeah, I'm gonna give, I'll give that a shot. Yeah. And I do remember the first time – you know, you go to them. You, know, you go to the prisons when you're on the parole board and you interview them. And the parole board is three-member board, and for the most part – what you do is you divide the cases up. So it's just one person that actually goes and meets with them. And then you come back and tell the other two, you give them a report and we decide what to do. Well, so that first time I'm walking in Lansing and walk, we're, we're walking through Lansing and I've seen all these guys and we're going to this cell and I'm like, what in the world did I get myself into? I mean, this was just, and the person, the funny, the person that was escorting me was this short little woman who didn't have a weapon. All she had was like a walkie-talkie. I'm kind of like, man, why do these guys attack me? I have no, I mean. <laughs> um, 
So do you go into the cell? You do. You do. You go. Yeah. Uh, It depends on some of them. You meet them in another room. Yeah. But some of them you do go to the cell. Depends on what, what, you know, kind of their. Huh? Yeah. So uh, you're literally only like them having a bad day away from you having a bad day. Right. And you're always, they're like, right. I mean, they're there. I mean, you're right there with you. Huh? Um, And, uh, you know. Yeah, so it's very interesting. I actually ended up enjoying the experience a lot. I mean, it's a lot of work. I mean, because you get their files of everything they ever did. Um, and and amazingly enough, still, at least in 2009, they were still all paper. No kidding. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you know how there was a lot of... Um, uh, this year, it was a big issue about how old the computers were at uh, Department of Labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the ones that, at least in 2009, the ones at the Department of Corrections were at least just as old. I mean, I could not believe how old the computer system was. And so there was very little, they still did, an awful lot of the paper stuff was just paper. There was very little yeah. that was actually. So not to derail us on the parole board, but a couple, I'm fascinated by this, a couple of questions for you. One, you can disabuse me of this notion if I'm wrong, but the parole board position is actually a fairly sought-after role, is it not? It is. I mean, I, I didn't actually realize that so much at the time. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it is. Uh, people, I mean, um, was it Paul Feliciano? Paul Feliciano. And actually, yeah. I took Paul's place. Paul was on it before me. And yeah. The interesting thing about Paul was is he did everything by hand. Paul's a great guy, but he has horrible handwriting. <laughs> And so I would inherit off his case. You know, the state was divided up. So I, being from Wichita, and he was from Wichita, you know, I would go to Winfield, Winfield Correctional Facility, go to El Dorado, go to Hutch, those were, and the Wichita work release. Those were the main ones I did. Now, we all would go to Lansing because there were so many there. Um, but so I had hit a lot of his cases. So his stuff was all written in handwritten and horrible to read. So I had a really hard time figuring out what he said about those people, you know, I was, oh, it'd be funny. Yeah, it was, it was tough. Like, like, man, Paul, I wish your handwriting was better, but yeah, well that I'll be darn. Well, that validates. That's always been my perception. That, that really was a pretty sought after position. And there are only three of them. And it's a right. full-time paid position. Oh, yeah, it's full-time paid position. It's a lot of work because yeah. uh, like I said, you study before you meet with them, you know, you've got stacks. Of, I mean, you wouldn't believe how I mean, some of these guys have a lot of paperwork that you yeah. need to go through and read. And well, and my other question for you is this. I mean, I know as a legislator that you are acutely aware that every law you pass and what you vote for and don't impacts the lives of Kansans. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that on an even more personal level, you hear from constituents that tell you their story. So you know not only how it's going to affect the state as a whole, but you know how it's going to come down on the individual but having said that, mm-hmm. I would have to think serving on the parole board where you are right across from that individual and the decision you're making is not going to affect just their discretionary spending budget, but their freedom. My gosh, that has to be a thunderous responsibility. It is. It's a huge responsibility. And, you know, I, I saw the gambit. I saw guys that you think – I mean, it felt like the temperature in the room dropped. I mean, it was like they felt just pure evil that they should never get out. But then I saw a lot of other people who were just, you, you, you read through their story, you hear their story. It's kind of like wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, it could have happened to almost anybody. I mean, yeah. it's just. Uh, well, I uh, I don't, I mean, it. the job to me sounds 
fascinating and ripe with an opportunity to do good, but I, I don't envy the responsibility and what must yeah. stick with you in your mind when you go to bed at night um, in that role. Yeah, it's it a is pretty, a really tough job. Yeah. Pretty fascinating position. Well, I, I got us sidebarred on the parole board spot, so that takes us to 12. Yeah, and well, okay, so I had my term on the parole board, and then when yeah, I was appointed by Governor Parkinson, well, then when Governor Brownback got elected, it's kind of... He, it was kind of interesting, and it really wasn't me he was going after, actually. You know, the parole board, there's three of us, and it, he wanted to change. You know, he didn't want to wait till the terms were up to change them. So he just got rid of it and renamed it the Prisoner Review Board. So you have all new people coming on at once. So uh, my term got ended uh, a little prematurely, but <laughs> that's what happened. So... Um, so uh, so I just went back to my private accounting practice. And actually, at that time point, I was selling walkie-talkies on the Internet. <laughs> I always have side businesses I do. Nothing's changed since no. the age of five. Right. It really hasn't. <laughs> but <laughs> I was making money somewhere. Um, but uh, what had happened, though, in the meantime, when I left in 2009, Melanie Barnes again was the one that took my place. She'd retired at that point. She could do it again. Well, when the 2010 elections came, she lost the seat, uh, a guy named Benny Bowman won the seat so 2012 what's what was interesting is you remember that's the year that it, they couldn't get reapportionment done in the legislature mm-hmm. so the judges had to draw the district yep. well the candidate who was running in the 95th got drawn out by the judges got moved into the 105th so all of a sudden the party had no candidate and so I was actually penning my house I said I was on the ladder the process of penning my house and all of a sudden my phone starts ringing 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 and I'm ignoring it, actually. I want to get my house painted. i got stuff I'm doing. I don't, want, I, I don't really want to deal with that. So the guy, and I, that's the first time I'd met him, a guy named Brandon Whipple was the Central County Democratic chair at the time. So he comes over to my house, and there's other people. The people start coming over. You'd never met Brandon before that? I had not met Brandon before that. I'll well, be I'd been on the parole board for a couple of years, yeah. and he was relatively new. That's when he was just getting started. And, yeah. You know. Um, so, because uh, you're on the parole board, you kind of get away from all your parts you yeah. just you know it, it's a very non-political kind of i mean it's mm-hmm. non-partisan kind of thing so anyway uh yeah so i'm like this young guy's here trying to you know yeah who he is but but uh anyway other people i knew quite well started calling me and started coming over and they're saying you need you to run we don't have a candidate and i'm like and it was really funny i had just decided it was funny about a week before i had all these yard signs because i i just always use yard signs over and over again you know i i've i had yard signs back to my first race actually so oh, wow. it lasted that's just but, being frugal oh that's very frugal uh <laughs> and uh i had a bunch from 92 and 96 in fact i hadn't bought any yard signs since 96 i had enough and just kept using them over and over i always go pick mine up on election night so that they wouldn't get you know i was saving right. use them again anyway um so I had all these in my attic, and I had to, no, I had them in my garage at the time. I had to decide what to do with them. And I was just, you know, the pro board just ended. The house map at the time had drawn me out of the district, actually. I'd been a, it would have been in a different district. So that I probably won't run again for the house. or you know. So I thought, I'm going to fly and get rid of these. And, and the, I, I don't know, I had a permanent, something told me not to. 
So instead of getting rid of them, I moved them up to the attic. So I saved them. So then when it came time to run, I said, well, at least I saved those yard signs. <laughs> I got them. So, okay, I'll do it again. So, uh, so in 2012, it was a little different role for me because I had to run against an incumbent. Um, you know, I'd been the incumbent for a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is uh, my race against Betty was interesting because the last two times I'd run for the house in 2006 and 2008, he was my opponent. And I'd gotten 62% the first time and 66 the second time. So I felt pretty good I could beat him. Uh, but it was still surprising when you're all of a sudden not the incumbent anymore. Uh, a lot of people that I thought would be supporting were kind of like, oh, you it's know. Tough it's to, tough. Yeah, yeah, tough to put your chips in against an incumbent. It is. It yeah. is. But I ended up beating him pretty – not as big as before, but yeah. 58%. I got 58 he, So he, he chopped it down a little bit being the incumbent. We, uh, we counsel our clients a lot about – you know, grassroots lobbying and get engaged in races and stuff. And we, we counsel them, hey, we're not saying don't ever support a challenger, but measure twice and cut once. Yeah, I, was, I came across that. I was really surprised. I'm kind of like, yeah. look, I just beat this guy with 66% of the vote four years ago. You think it's going to change that much? I mean, <laughs> come on, okay. But, we'll have to – I want to – Switch to uh, your. We've talked about your elections and your time in the House. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to talk about your roles in leadership uh-huh. uh, because you have an incredibly unique tale to tell in that regard. But before we do, you mentioned your signs. And yeah, I love the fact that you're frugal and saved them, and that you yep. would go out on election night before they suffered any more weather or vandalism or whatever. Um, I used to live for many years in. Uh, Tom Sloan's district. Some of our listeners will remember Tom Sloan. And I would always tell Tom, you're certainly welcome to put a sign in my yard if you want to. And my God, that man's commitment to, he would, I would have a sign that had been hailed through and <laughs> soaked soggy and i'd ask him you know, do you want me to? he said no i think i can rehabilitate that yeah. thing why don't uh, why don't i go ahead and take that back with I me i fully understand yeah. That. Yeah. and you know what as a guy that was up here deciding what to do with my tax dollar i thought that was just fine yeah. that he was that frugal well moving on so uh unless our listeners are students of history they may have never known or forgot even if they did uh I, I should just let you tell the story, but you have occupied both uh, house leadership positions. Has anybody else ever done this? Or is it, are you? I, I don't even know. I mean, so, I don't know. I, uh, so for listeners, he, Tom has served as house majority leader and house minority leader. Yep. Uh, in, in some states, perhaps that's not quite as rare when the house flips majorities more often. Right. But in Kansas pretty darn rare so uh, with that i will step back uh walk us through it yeah in fact the democrats have only had the house majority in kansas three times so you know and the first time was 1912 way before any of us around so <laughs> the opportunities there are very often um but uh yeah i i got elected house uh, majority leader at, in uh 92 uh the democrats we had this rare it was only a 63 62 majority mm-hmm. and and uh, so when you have a majority that close, it's not really much of a majority. But uh, I actually had a good working relationship. I'd been in the House since 86 and had built up a good working relationship with a lot of Republicans. So it was – I actually kind of had a cushion. I had several Republicans. In fact, it's kind of ironic. One of the Republicans who was very helpful to me was Mark Parkinson. He was a Republican House member at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, well, that came full circle, didn't Yeah, that it? came full circle. Yeah. Uh, and a, a woman named Elizabeth Baker, who just died recently, uh, 
we ended up becoming very good friends, and she was very helpful um, as a Republican. Uh, but so that helps some. But anyway, so I had the majority. And then, of course, we lost the majority. We only had a 63-62 majority. But the next election, we dropped to 59. Didn't drop a lot, but we lost the majority. And then I got elected minority leader. So I've served in both those roles. And then the other issue, again, of course, is I got elected majority leader or minority leader again, you know, three years ago. So mm-hmm. I, I'm two different stints as minority leader and one as majority leader. I'm sure that doesn't happen very often. Uh, surely anyway. that's the only time in Kansas. <laughs> now, I am going to tell you another story. This, this, I'll tell you, this floored me. Um, this just happened pretty recently. You know, Joe, uh, Joe Biden uh, President Biden came to Kansas City recently, and the night before, I get this thing, so you're invited to that, and I was in Wichita, and I'm like, oh my gosh, do I really want to drive to Kansas City? I've been, you know, I've been to other, when presidents have come, and, you know, it's always, you wait around forever, and it's kind of, ends up taking all day, and it's, you know, so it's kind of, I don't know if I, but I say, that's the president I should go, so, so I drive to Kansas City, sure enough, you know, had to be, he had to be there no later than 11, he doesn't show up till like two thirty, but that's how those things are. That was, you know. So you're waiting around a long time and stuff. It's long, you know. He comes now. They did have sit sitting in the front row, so that was kind of nice. Um, but you know, he speaks, and I'm kind of like, okay, I'm kind of interested to get back because it's you know. But, but Joe comes and starts shaking everybody's hand. That's Work, there. working the line. Working the line. And he gets to me, and first of all, he says, "Hi, Tom. How are you doing?" And I'm like, "I'm stunned. I didn't talk to him for several years," and. uh then he he brings up he goes he goes how are you doing he goes we got to get you back uh, in the majority I'm like I'm going you know you you're one of those rare guys that's been in the, in the majority leader and minority leader and I'm like my gosh the president remembered that so it kind of made my day he, that's uh, crazy wasn't that yeah. crazy so do you think I mean not that it's very Joe Fetty like if you know Joan or or Robert Stephan these guys Bob Stephan was a former Attorney General that mm-hmm. used to just. Uh, I'm amazed at these people that could do that. Yeah. So do you think it was, do you think he actually remembered, or do you think he has just a crackerjack staff that well, said? I, well, the thing about it, even if it was, he, what, this happened after he spoke. So he gets up there, and he speaks for like 30 minutes, and then starts working the crowd. Uh, you know, if he'd been told that ahead of time by staff, Tom, he still remember. I mean, I was still pretty impressive, but I'm not sure his staff would have known that. Now, maybe... But, they would have had to have dug pretty well, deep. Well, they would have yeah. had to dug pretty deep. Yeah. But he and I had had that conversation several years ago when, he, um, when he'd come to Kansas. That's unbelievable. Uh, so I was amazed if he remembered. I'd go, my gosh, I, he remembered that yeah. conversation. Or, you know, that was, that was uh, uh, a personalized word of encouragement from a president of the United yeah. States. Those yeah. are hard to come yeah. by. Boy, they are. They yeah. Are. So your comment about some people just know how to work a room. I, I hope he wouldn't mind us telling this anecdote. But we had Derek Schmidt, the attorney general. Not on the BHL podcast, but one of our client podcasts we do, and talked about that. And you've been around the general. He's gifted in that regard. You know, he can remember names and whatever. And he tells the story of when he got married. His He was at a table of um, people, predominantly relationships from his wife's side. Wow. So they were new to him, and he had, you know, he had by golly committed himself to you know memorizing these over the course of the evening and came time for him to offer some remarks and he said i started going around the table one at a time and offering some personal anecdote that i picked up you know showcasing that i'd listened and i'd cared and he said there was there was one just one that i blanked on and he said to this day 
you know, 30 years later, whatever, it's the only friend of my wife's that's ever been divorced and everything <laughs> else, you know, came off the rails and said, never underestimate the importance of a, you know, the personal, somebody remembering you personally and, and offering an anecdote like that. Oh. That's crazy, though. That the crazy? president of the United yeah. States. Made Mercy. my day. So they made more like I'm glad I went. That was good. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, let me ask you this. So that is a, well, two questions, I guess. Before we move on from the fact that you've had both majority and the minority leader position, which is easier, which isn't, well, I know neither one of them are easy jobs. But having said that, which of them is easier? Is it easier to be minority leader or majority leader? That is a really good question. Neither yeah. one are easy. I mean, one thing I'll say about being majority leader is you have the burden of governing and mm-hmm. making, getting everything passed and getting things done. And, and that's a burden I see, that a lot of people don't understand. In, some, in fact, I think that's one that helps me as minority leaders. I, I understand what the majority has to go through. I've been a committee chair. I've been majority leader. I know what, they're, what they, they've got to do. So I think it makes it easier. I can empathize with what they're trying to do. It makes it a little easier. I mean, one thing about being minority leader um, that is easier, you don't have that burden. I mean, now, there are a whole lot of things about minority leader that, that, that are a lot of work. I mean, one of the things about, you know, when you're the majority leader, you're dealing with the calendar. You're dealing with the debate. You're not have to deal quite as much with like personnel issues and stuff because you got the speaker that that does that. When you're minority, you have to deal with all that stuff. And the toughest thing about being minority no minority leader is all the personnel stuff. Man, it is just you know it is not easy. And even something simple, you know, people think it's great when you get to appoint committees and stuff. Well, it's tough because you know just like appropriations this time, we had one slot. We had twenty two people trying to get one slot. Mm. Well. You're going to make one person happy, but you're going to make 21 people mad. I yeah. mean, that's just the way. And then reapportionment was kind of the same way. Lots of people. And we just had a few slots. And, you know, that's, so that's the tough part. Uh, even doing even anything like committee assignments, that it's, it's just not easy. Um, Travis and I have just of late had the opportunity to have many folks from leadership on the podcast. And it is unbelievable how consistently they talk about one of, if not the biggest challenge of being in leadership – People, most of us would think about, you know, public policy, getting votes gathered, et cetera, et cetera. It is amazing how consistently they come back to uh, it is managing your people. You become counselor. You become almost surrogate parent. You become arbiter and mediator and that it is that it is one of the most underappreciated uh, burdens. It is. It is. Respect. I mean, the stuff you talked about, the public, that's the fun part. The public policy, mm-hmm. you know, working on legislation, getting something passed, uh, you know, that's the great part. Trying to get the votes lined up and stuff. I mean, to me, I enjoy that part. It is the tough, you know, all the personal issues. That's the tough part. Well, I never heard him say it, but it was alleged to me many times that Bob Dole always said it is easier to govern in the minority or to be a leader in the minority than the majority. And I'm, I'm probably butchering what I'm sure he said eloquently, but basically uh, it's a lot easier to convince people to vote no than it oh, is yeah. to convince them to vote yes. Yeah. And when you're in the minority, um, I mean, not that you always vote no by any means, right. but uh, you know, it's not uncommon that you'll find yourself on the opposite side of the majority and holding together a caucus and those 
uh, can be less challenging yeah. sometimes than a caucuses of yes. I mean, it's kind of like when Sam Brownback was governor and Republicans had big majorities, it's a little easier to be in the minority because you're just basically opposing stuff. You're not really. But for a lot of my time in the minority, though, that really wasn't the case. You know, I, my first time in the minor, uh, minority, the, my first six years in minority leader in the 90s, my first two years, Joan Finney was governor. So we had a Democratic governor. Um, the Senate was like 22-18, so it was close. The Republicans yeah. had it, but not by much. And then the House was 66 Republicans, 59 Democrats. So, But we still we had the burden of trying to help get the governor's agenda passed, get the budget passed. Get, so those couple years definitely did not feel like a typical kind of minority. Well, then after that, the 94 election, Bill Graves gets elected. The, that was the first big insurgence of conservatives in the Republican caucus. You know, the, there'd always been a lot of moderates. All of a sudden, there was all these conservatives took the majority of the Republican caucus. There's still a lot of moderates, but the, the, you had a conservative majority. And they did not care much for Governor Graves. And there was a lot of friction. So the governor, as I said, the governor and I had a great relationship. He counted on us to help pass his budgets and pass a lot of stuff. So it, those four years still kind of felt like uh, I was majority leader in a yeah. lot of ways since yeah. the majority. Uh, it was uh, that's a unique dynamic. Yeah, it was a great at, at least here in Kansas. It yeah. has been. Yeah, interesting. Uh, that brought me to a question that I that I was gonna that I had was you're a majority leader with a Democratic governor, correct? Right. And then minority leader with a Democratic governor, and the numbers were pretty close. Was there a difference between being a majority leader and getting that public policy passed compared to minority leader, or was it kind of similar, even though you know one was majority and one was minority? Um, it was similar, but it, there was a difference because you know, when you're majority, you're setting the agenda, yeah. so it became much easier. We could, you know, do the stuff we want to do. You're still when you're minority, you're reacting to the to yeah. the majority agenda. And so when, it's a little and when harder. You're, and when you're majority leader, the committee chairs are your committee right. chairs. Right. That's a huge. Part Although of it. I tell you what. Um, Again, since we had a 63-62 majority, the committees were all just one more Democrat than Republican. So the committees weren't always very easy. <laughs> Sometimes we had to fix things on the floor a lot because uh, we had Republicans we could count on, on the floor. Sometimes in those committees, it didn't work out so well. You've uh, got a lot of leverage with your leadership when they need every single one of your votes. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. In fact, what's interesting, a lot of times I tell people – and. Really, we had a 62-63 majority because there was this one guy from Wyandotte County, a guy named Tom Love, that rarely voted with us. So I almost always <laughs> had to get Republicans support for everything because I couldn't count on Tom Love. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. All this time, so your your background is as, as full as almost anybody we've talked to in terms of public service. And so – and it's – Funny for listeners, we had Travis and I were having lunch with Tom before the podcast and turned into old home week as we, Tom and I, talked about all the common personalities we've run across over the years. And it made me want to ask you this question. I'm sure you have had a hundred mentors and people that have shaped you and influenced you. And we also appreciate that when you start recognizing people you almost run the sin of omission of the people you leave out but in spite of that uh i would ask you are there one or two or three or four or five names of people that uh really were impactful in shaping your career and your commitment to public service and how you lead um and people that you know you admired and and wanted to take away the best parts from 
Yeah, I, yeah. So there's been several over the years, and many of them are dead now because I was young when I got started. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, I, we talked about much. I was 33. I got elected majority leader, so you know, yeah, started at a very young age. That's we should have brought that up on the questions earlier. 33 year old yeah. House Majority Leader, yeah. um, also uncommon. Yeah, um, but yeah. So, so there, there were some people very early on. There was a guy named Ralph Ross who was a teacher in Wichita. That was just an activist in Central County politics, but he and I became really good friends, and he kind of worked on all my early campaigns and all my I'm all my campaigns up until about 2012 or 14, but uh, until fairly recently. Um, so he was really an important influence, particularly from the political side, because um, he understood politics really well and and uh, campaigns that kind of thing. A guy named Lee Kinch, who just died recently, uh, former county chair, he was county chair in '90 when we did take the majority, and. Uh, the way he ran the Cedric County politics and built the Cedric County organization, I think, helped us a lot. We gained four seats in Cedric County that year alone. So it helped us get that majority. Uh, so he was somebody that's always been um, pretty a big influence on me. Yeah, um, and I'll tell you an interesting story because um, she is still alive. But her husband died recently. Um, Pat Lehman, and I don't know if you know her. She was a big, she was a big labor leader and machinist in Wichita. But also, she has this reputation of being a pretty volatile person. And you don't want to get on her bad side, that kind of thing. So when I'm 18, I don't know any better, right? I'm a student at Wichita State. I just started kind of volunteering for the Jimmy Carter campaign, the Dan Glickman campaign, kind of getting some interest in politics. Somebody's talking about, oh, you ought to run for precinct committee, man. So I file. I don't pay any attention. I don't know anybody, right? Well, the precinct committee man and woman in my precinct was a woman named Pat Lehman and her husband, Leroy Lehman, who were very big labor leaders and very involved in the party. You know, I probably would not have run if I'd even known that. So you're running against them? I'm running against them. Okay. And so I'm going door to door. And again, my naivety, I knock on their door, right? (laughs) Pat answers. Now, if this had gone differently, I might have not been in politics at all because people who've dealt with Pat, I mean, she could scare people away. I mean, she's a very powerful woman that, you know, very opinionated, but... And you didn't realize you were knocking on your no, opponent's door. No, I didn't even realize that. That's how <laughs> naive I was. 18. So I knock on the door. Pat answers. And she's asking me, oh. And she's asking me how old I was, 18, and asked about my interest and what I'd been doing. I tell her work on the good And she was very impressed. She's like, wow, I'm really impressed that somebody this young getting interested in politics, getting – and uh, starts asking a few more questions. And she, I could – you know, it started off a little bit tense, but I could tell she's kind of warming up to me and stuff. And then she introduces, she tells me who she is. She's one of the precinct committee women. And I'm kind of, uh, okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so then she's like, it's, no, it's great. I'm glad the young people get involved. She yells at her husband, Leroy. She's like, Leroy, you're not going to be precinct committee man anymore. <laughs> I mean, so that's how my relationship with Pat Lehman started. And, and, and so I've had a great relationship for, for all these years. And sometimes, you know, people, you know, early in politics, when I was running, for legislature or just anything, just kind of like, well, you got to make sure you get to know Pat Lehman and get on her good side. She's she's tough. And uh, so, so uh, just to confirm, you literally, you know, lobbied this woman on her doorstep before knowing who whose house you were even at, and it concludes with her hollering, uh, not a question, yeah. not a suggestion. Right. She's telling her husband he's not going to be, but a directive. Uh, yeah. Honey, you're you're getting out of the race because yeah. I'm I'm sitting on the porch talking to our next precinct yeah. committee. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, and so Pat and Leroy and I've been good 
friends ever since. Leroy just died, actually died from COVID just uh, this year, but um, uh, so we've been friends all these years, uh, good friends. Uh, That's and they, wild. And you know, like I said, they helped me a lot in politics. Uh, always been big supporters. I have to say, my friend, you have some unique unique yeah. stories uh with some of these journeys that is wild yeah. huh. I, i'll tell you another one i'll tell you another yeah, interesting please, one please this do. one it's funny because i didn't even it, it in 1993 let's see i think when i when will i've been 36 uh yeah 1993 young democrats national convention is in maryville indiana and there's a guy from kansas named Harold Winger, who's KYD national treasurer, and decides to run for KYD president. I was House Majority Leader at the time, so I said, I'll go to that convention and help you win. We'll work on this. And Paul Davis was also at that convention. He was just brand new in YDs. You know, that's how I first got to know Paul Davis. So, so we go to Illinois, or excuse me, we go to the convention in Indiana, and the biggest delegation that's undecided in this race for... Um, um, KYD president is Illinois. So, like, there's these two guys that kind of control the votes from Illinois that are really important to get to know. And so they said, you got to spend time with these guys. So I spent most of the time drinking beer and playing pool with these two guys. <laughs> now, the two guys ended up being Robbie Manuel and Barack Obama. Yes, he was, that was Barack Obama before he was Barack Obama. I mean, before anybody knew. It was in 1993. But yeah, so I spent that time with them. And what's, I tell you, the biggest kicker about that is I didn't even realize that's who the two guys were until just a couple of years ago. Some other people were there were like, well, because I had, you know, I'd met lots of presidents, spent a lot of time, but somebody, I said, you know, I've never met Barack Obama. And this person's like, yes, you did. I go, what do you mean? I was there. And you goes, shot pool with him. You shot pool. He's like, <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, that was Barack Obama. I, you know, it was like, I totally didn't remember his name. And uh, Rahm Emanuel. And Rahm Emanuel, yeah. That's, I've spent. That's insane. Isn't that insane? Yes, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Uh, that's absolutely crazy. You shot pool and had a beer with the several beers actually. <laughs> well, I was, I was softening it. Yeah. For, uh, that's nuts. Isn't that nuts? And with the mayor of Chicago and whatever his. That's yeah. That's insane. Yeah. My gosh, you're like the Forrest Gump of of. <laughs> I like that a lot of stories. <laughs> Good and bad. Well, you know, it's funny. Travis and I have been talking about starting a second podcast series that's uh, a little less restricted and a little more colorful than <laughs> yeah. this one. We may have to have you on that one, too. Yeah, I, I have a lot of interesting stories, like about with meetings with governors and stuff. I, I don't think I'm the all the time. Well, that is crazy. Uh, and how cool uh, to to have that. I mean, uh, you're that's not two degrees from greatness. That's that's right there. Yeah. I do. Wow. Have, I do have to ask though, um, and if you want to, you can tell us. If not, we'll we'll let the former president have his have his glory. Did you beat him? Did you did you win at the pool game? Were you on the same oh, team? That's an outstanding question. Actually, I think I won some. I, I don't. You know, it's so long ago. It's hard to remember. Okay. But I'm sure I didn't. Uh, My guess is a shrewd political operator such as yourself needing the Illinois votes for your candidate. He, he probably did real well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not your first rodeo no, on, on counting votes. <laughs> no. That's funny. Uh, uh, I don't want to speak for Travis, but personally, I am uh, blessed with a naturally abysmal golf game. So client golf comes so easy to me. Uh, yeah, I don't golf. When people, I will occasionally 
do a golf tournament, but I, I'm the guy that will bring the beer on the beer cart. Yeah. So everybody's happy to see me. I don't. I just, yeah, no, once or twice a year when I have to, and uh, I takes no effort to make sure the client wins. Yeah, well, none, yeah. none whatsoever. Well, we have, moving on, a couple yeah. other things we want to touch on. You've already spent a lot of time with us today. In your stints as uh, minority leader specifically, let's focus on your role today and what okay. you're doing. Um, talk to us about some of the, it's another question we like to ask of everybody in leadership because we get uh, the answers are just so insightful to the person and usually something we wouldn't think about. Um, what are some of the more surprising parts of the role that we wouldn't think of and what brings you the most joy? Well, again, the most joy is when bills come together. You get help get legislation passed. I mean, um, or in some cases it's defeating something. I mean, but most of the time it's feeling good that you, you made public policy changes um, and you know, that's always, uh, to me, the biggest role. I, I think probably for any legislator, any, but as a minority leader, when you're able to put the votes together and help pass something, um, yeah, it, that that's the best. Yeah. Um, again, it's what I don't like is the personnel stuff. I mean, dealing with the conflicts, dealing with people. People have personal issues you have to help counsel them with you've got i mean it's just amazing the game i don't think people realize i mean it's tough and um uh you got a lot of different people from all over the state different backgrounds and, and sometimes it's just trying to keep everybody you know it's like hurting cats i still be able to be a minority leader majority leader. It's, it's like hurting cats they're independent contractors that you know you're you're not really their boss you can't fire them i mean you can't well you know it's really a tough yeah, thing no. so trying to keep people everybody happy and on board with the same team going the same direction boy it's not easy yeah no doubt huge challenge, and it is a huge challenge. one thing we didn't talk about here when we had blaine finch on the podcast we talked about how different it is campaigning for votes within your district your voters your electorate right. and campaigning for votes within your caucus oh, yeah. for a leadership position very and, different uh yeah the very toughest races are the leadership races within your caucus you know all those people very well. Um, and over the years, I've been through a lot of them. It's also the ones where people carry the most grudges and stuff. People get hurt the most and stuff. It's, they're tough. It's they very are, personal. It's very personal. It's yeah. very tough. It's even tougher. You know, it's funny because I ran for state party chair a couple times. And that's somewhat similar, but it's not the same. Because you don't know the people as well. It's a little, you know, the state committee had 137 people on it. So it's a little bigger group. And uh, uh just don't know them quite as well and not quite as personal, but it's similar to that. But, but, um, those kind of races are just really, really tough. Yeah. And we won't give any specifics away, but you know, on our way back from lunch today, we were talking about a prior race <laughs> you were in and an internal leadership race and, and something you're successful in and, but it was competitive and Travis asked you the question. He's like, "Do you remember the?" Mar and this was this was not five years ago. This was a long time ago. And Travis, like, do you remember the margin? You said, "Oh yeah, absolutely." <laughs> they I, are. That's really amazing. Uh, and, and I've always been really good at counting votes. Uh, I can probably tell you the names of everybody who voted for me. Too. At least I think it So <laughs> still, so it's kind of amazing. It is pretty personal. Oh uh, yeah, no uh, doubt. Uh, very personal races. Um, More importantly, you could tell us the names of everybody that voted against you. Yes, uh, that's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. You, know, uh, you mentioned Blaine Finch. Uh, he replaced a guy named Ralph Tanner. Mm -hmm. um, 
that district. I don't. Know, there, I think people mm-hmm. had it between. People did have it between Ralph and him. But I had served in the '90s. Ralph was our rules chair, and there's a picture in my office of me with my finger in Ralph's face, just yelling at Ralph. And that was a picture that was actually on the front page of the Capitol Journal. That it was he, Dennis McKinney, kept trying to offer an amendment that would take our surplus and kind of basically start a rainy day fund or, or pay debt off. And he kept on it not germane, no matter. And he'd give his reasons. So we finally, the fourth time, offered this amendment. We thought it meant everything he said. He still ruled it not germane. So I'd had it at that point. Minority leader. I'm in his face saying, "You just don't want to vote on this." I am just in his face, Ralph. That was on the front page of the Capitol Journal. He gets it framed, <laughs> signs it, saying, I owe it. You, were, you were always my favorite Democrat to debate with. <laughs> so it's, that is still in my office. And uh, I said, but, uh, so anyway, so when Blaine Fitch wins, I get a call from Ralph telling me, All right, take care of this guy. He's good. You can work with him. He's a good guy. How cool is that? So that was, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. Uh, but that's hardcore to take a picture of uh, you with your finger in his face. Oh, yeah. And frame it was, it and I, you could tell I was pretty mad. We were really going at it. Um, and how ironic Blaine ends up being the rules chair as well. Yes. Yeah. No, that's what same I was district. very, very same district. That's and, funny. Uh, and then I was vice chair rules under Blaine, so uh, we got to have some of those discussions. Yeah, so. no doubt. He's a sharp guy. Very sharp guy. Yeah, no doubt. Well, tell us, uh, we haven't talked at all, and since this podcast is really about getting to know the person much more than it is politics, tell us about your family. Okay. Well, yeah, I um, I have four sisters. I'm the oldest. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents, it was, my parents had an interesting background. Uh, my mom... Uh, uh, Family was from Mexico. Uh, my grandma was born in Mexico, um, so she had a uh, had a Mexican background. Uh, my dad, who you know, it's funny. I, I got to know my grandpa pretty well, especially as I got older. But when I was younger, you know, you don't always know. It's my granddad Sawyer, but he was, I, I, I basically racist. I mean, he just had you know, he had this. This is your paternal, paternal, your dad's, my dad's dad. dad. Uh-huh. And he did not like my parents' marriage, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, you could never tell that as a kid growing up because they loved the grandkids. Right. It didn't matter. It was always kind of thing. But I knew, always knew there was this kind of this friction because my, my grandparents did not live very far. My, the Martinez's was my mom's uh, grandparents. And the Sawyer's, my dad's, we didn't live very far apart, but they never said, there was never any interaction. And you'd go to one house or we'd go to the other, you know, it was always kind of separate. And uh, uh, but I didn't realize until I got older how much he really resented my dad marrying a Mexican woman, and uh, uh, so had that always had that background. But he, my granddad was a great guy, but you know that, yeah. uh, he had that, so that always had some friction. Um, my mom's side of the family—it was kind of t- the difference too. My mom's side of the family—it seemed like we were related to everybody. You know, had zillions of cousins, and the my great grandparents lived in El Dorado, and every Sunday. Now we didn't always. Our family didn't always go every Sunday, but every Sunday, all the relatives would go to their house and eat and be together. And it literally was like hundreds of people. When I was a kid, it seemed like you know, the whole world. Like, there was hundreds of people here. I mean, it was just you know crowded when we when we would go. Um, whereas, and my dad's family was a lot, but we didn't really ever know our relatives very well. Where my mom's side, third and fourth cousins are like close. You know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of amazing the difference growing up that way. But. Um, so I had that background. My dad, 
initially was a painter, um, and his dad, my granddad, owned the DeVoe Paint Store in downtown Wichita. Um, uh, my dad, though, when we were, I was five, had a bad accident, had both arms broken, and my mom, at that up to that point, hadn't didn't know how to drive a car, so she had to learn how to drive because all of a sudden we didn't have that anymore, and uh, so. My dad, though, lost his job selling paint and being a painter because he had to be out of work quite a while. Um, but he got a job at the post office, um, and that's where he worked until he retired. Uh, ended up doing pretty well at the post office. Uh, but our first feet, when he was a painter and when he, he was unemployed, we were very poor. I mean, we just didn't, and I didn't realize it so much later because um, my mom would make these mayonnaise sandwiches. And I didn't realize that's a, it was just white bread and mayonnaise, but that's all she she didn't have anything to put in them. You know, they were supposed to be cheese sandwiches or something, but you know, there was nothing to put in them. So we had those and stuff. So it was pretty tight early years. But after my dad got out of the post office and worked well, we he started doing a lot better, and uh, we started doing better. But like I said, I always made my own money, so mm -hmm. I didn't worry so much. <laughs> I worked from an early age. Well, we uh, don't we don't need to get bogged down in it here, but we talk a lot about I mean how those. Your childhood influences the rest of your yeah, life, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah. boy, if you've ever had, to whatever degree you've ever had to do without, it carries with you for the rest yeah. of your life. Yeah. Uh, whether it's absolute poverty or whether it's, you know, you were doing fine, but by God, you're going to turn the light off when you left the room because that was wasteful or yeah. whatever it is, it it, it sticks. Yeah. It we didn't have air conditioning. I'll tell you, those summers were hot. We had one fan, this old fan that kind of oscillated a little bit, and we'd all lay on the rug and you kind of go ah oh, when the air would blow back <laughs> <laughs> you know, pretty hot the summertime but uh, um my uh my better half she well she'll kill me for saying this but she was born in 77 which you know to me is that's a it's a very young yeah. person but all the way into her teenage years they didn't have ac and they slept outside wow yeah, yeah. uh and no he slept some outside in the summertime but isn't it funny you said you thought nothing of it with those sandwiches she would tell you the same story you know yeah. i don't the, when you're a kid, it's just normal. Right. You know exactly I mean? right. I had no idea. I didn't realize until years later. We were poor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not until either somebody tells you you're yeah. poor or life thrusts enough experience on you that you see enough other things. Well, anyway, I've totally pulled you off script. So parents and four sisters. Right. And you yeah. said you were the oldest? I'm the oldest. Yeah. yeah. Are they all still within a... I've got two of my sisters live in Omaha, Nebraska. Um my youngest sister, who's 10 years younger than me, Pam, lives in Wichita. Mm -hmm. And then my next to youngest, she kind of travels around. She's kind of a free spirit. I think she's in Texas right now, but it's kind of hard. Never quite know where she is. Well, we're recording this podcast in early January when it's colder than a well digger's butt in the Klondike. So, frankly, your nomadic sister is the smartest one of the bunch if she's in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, she does spend the winters down when it's warm. Yeah, that doesn't sound uh, like a free spirit. It sounds like a wise oh, spirit yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah, so you have the baseball stadium down there. I know we're talking yeah. about that a little bit at lunch. Um, in your district, if I'm not mistaken, right. correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. It is um, in my district. Any other, I'm, you know, we talked about going to the game all the time. Any other things you do in your free time? Uh, of course, I love baseball. I have since I was a kid. Love going to baseball games. Join a couple of baseball mm -hmm. lovers here as well. Yeah, yeah, I also like going to basketball games. Um, we have the Wichita State Shockers, and I like to go to those games. Um, and I, as a kid, I enjoyed shooting hoops. You know, just love to go out and shoot basketball when I could. Um, 
another thing I did growing up, and I did until I became legislature, I, I bowled. Uh, I was a bowler, and uh, I was actually one of the reasons. I was talking about the guy that recruited me to run, Homer Jarko. He bowled. Well, he and I bowled in the same league in, in Wichita for a while. And his daughter and I bowled on leagues, so so that, that, that we had a bowling connection. And in fact, my first year in legislature, after I got elected in '86, '87, I, I had this Thursday night league I bowled on, and I still. My first year in the legislature, I stayed on that league. So on Thursdays, I'd drive all the way back to Wichita just to bowl and come back for the Friday session. Oh, my gosh. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I only did it the first session. That's After a that, commitment. I, I was kind of like, you guys have to get somebody to replace me. You I just, just can't. Praying uh, for Signy died. Or not Signy died, but um, oh, oh, for crying out loud. First adjournment? No, the uh, Fridays where you don't have to show. Oh, right. oh, pro forma. Right. Pro forma. Thank yeah. you. Good heavens, yeah. Yeah. We didn't t- We didn't have pro formas back then. Oh, and you still went back. I still oh. would go back. Because um, we didn't. They didn't do they didn't start performance until maybe mid-90s, I think. Huh. Um, now, lots of times we didn't do much on Fridays. Right. But you had but to be there. I had to be there. So oh, I'd go back and man. punch my button and leave. <laughs> check, check that, <laughs> check that, check that attendance box. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. and I was a freshman, so I didn't, you know, I was afraid to screw up. You know, you didn't want to not go. I didn't. Re- right. You know, a few years later, I might realize, eh, I could probably skip some of these Fridays, but, you know. Right. I didn't want to do that then. It's uh, it's amazing what you'll do when you're young. Yeah, yeah. So I did that. The first, but after that, I couldn't do that anymore. But So I haven't bowled much since then. I used to bowl a lot. It's just I don't have the time anymore. Uh, but I, I do enjoy bowling. But uh, I also like enjoy, I enjoy going to movies. Um, you know, pre-COVID, I'd go to a lot of movies. I, I really do like to go to movies. Um, since COVID, it's been kind of tough. haven't gone to too many. But I did see the latest Bond movie, No Time to Die, Several times. It was very good. Outstanding. And I'm a big Spider-Man fan, but I have not made it to the Spider-Man movie yet. I, I can't believe it. I'm sure I'll get there soon. Uh, TG, the look on your face when Spider-Man came up, you've seen it. I have. And it's it as is. good as advertised. It is as good as advertised. Everybody says that. It I is. am amazed. Because, you know, right now, still post-COVID, it's like movies are not doing No, no movies are making money. Right. This movie is setting all kinds of records. This is incredible. Uh, the opening weekend, I mean, it's like... It's still, it is just, it's all, it's like $1.4 billion and it's still, you know, grossing already. Yeah. It's just, yeah. so. Well, you mentioned it. We're going to, so I'm going to dive into, I told you we weren't, we weren't going to talk about, you know, divisive, contentious topics, but, but I lied since Uh-oh. you brought up No Time to Die. Who's the best Bond? Oh, man. Oh. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, and I think it's because of the, time period you know i was when i was a teenager i think i like roger more the best but you know they all have their strength other than the only one i really doesn't seem to fit for me was timothy dalton yeah um the others uh, you can make a case for even george lansby only did one mm-hmm. uh, i think he made a pretty good bond in that one movie he did but sean connery was great you want those sean Connery movies and like i said roger moore i think because he was a bond i really got to know him as a teenager he was at the bond movies yeah. at that time um yeah, but Pierce Bronson is a pretty good Bond in terms. Of, he seems very mm-hmm. Bond-like, very kind of debonair. And, right. Um, and I think Roger Craig, you know, my nephew, who's also become a big Bond fan, he just turns 25 this year. Uh, Roger Craig is by far his favorite. But again, it's Daniel Craig. The, Daniel the, Craig. The, the cur- yeah, yeah no, Daniel no. Craig. But I can tell him, well, he's like Roger Moore was for me. I mean, because that's yeah. the Bond that... You know. uh, uh, Daniel Craig, 100% my really? favorite. Yeah, I went from being kind of a 
passive casual bond fan uh-huh. to oh I'm, I'm i will run not walk through a river of glass to go see the new bond movies and this is the last one with daniel I know. craig i, I really me. wish he'd made more i do too because uh, he does make a good one oh he's so good and yes, uh, i like him but i also just like the fact that the movies to me switched from i mean they were almost farcical before like you know Oh, yes, my dear lady. I'll hold my martini while I <laughs> judo chop this bad guy with yeah. the handheld nuclear propulsion, whatever. Yeah, and then here comes Daniel Craig. I mean, just getting the holy hell beat out of him on screen and the just grit and the reality and the, the I mean, it's a whole new bond yeah. from the time he no, came he, on. He, uh, I do like him. Yeah. Uh, he, he's done well. His, I like his. I watch. Yeah, I talk about saw No Time to Die. I will still watch like Skyfall or um, mm-hmm. Casino Royale. Or, yes, um, yeah. Qu- Quantum of Solace Quantum was Solace. was the the weakest link of the Daniel Craig's, and still good. It is still good. Yeah. And the thing, it was kind of interesting. The thing I like about Quantum of Solace now is it's shorter than all the others, mm-hmm. so it's easier if you just want to kind of watch it without <laughs> taking. Because Bond movies tend to be long. Oh, they do, but Quantum of Solace is a little shorter. And so. he saved the longest for last. By the time no, I saw oh gosh, No Time no. to Die in the theater, and by the time it was over, I needed a bathroom break. Oh, I know it is in the worst way. It is very long. It is, is a very good movie. Oh, it's so good. It is really good. Anybody so hasn't seen it should. I mean, it's still in theaters barely, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, I would I would recommend that one. Yeah, I, like I said, I saw it four times. By the, the time theaters. this podcast comes out, the time will have probably, oh, probably passed, will. which is too bad because seeing that one on the big screen is. Yeah, in fact, yeah. two of the times I saw it was an IMAX. That's I awesome. Just, I really wanted to see the. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, good. Well, shameless plug, the best thing I've seen in the last six months, in addition to No Time to Die, King Richard. Oh, I haven't seen that Will one. Smith, play, it's a true story, Will Smith plays the father of Venus and Serena Williams, the tennis players. Oh, oh. Yeah, And that it's the story good. of how he influenced their life growing up. He's incredible. I really love historical movies. I do, too. That That's really, I mean, I talk about Bond and spider-man but really my favorites are the historical ones like the one they did with about harriet tubman or mm-hmm. um ruth gator bader ginsburg mm-hmm. I mean, thurgood marshall you know these last they i really like those yeah. probably the best but uh do you have amazon prime at home oh i do uh, by the way our listeners are probably going really did i stick around to learn about tom sawyer <laughs> just all the way to hear your your movie scuttlebutt yeah. uh meet the ricardos I want to see that. I saw it advertised. I, I was watching. I don't remember what I was watching. I was on Prime the other night. And I think that, that advertisement, I, I got to watch that. I thought it was amazing. Just amazing. Well, somebody, I mean, I enjoyed, you know, Lucy and I Love Lucy and all Des, you know, all those. Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid. Uh-huh. So I, I, I would, yeah. It really, it really it interesting. is 100% worth the watch. Yeah. Now, Travis probably doesn't even right. know what we're talking about. Yeah, have you ever seen I Love Lucy, Travis? I have not. Are you I've serious, Lucy? a few Lucy? episodes when the parents had it on in the background. <laughs> and I've... You're, you are aware that there was a show? show called I Love Lucy. I am aware of that. Okay, I'm good. aware of the, the high-pitched we... voice, Lucy. Yeah. Okay, now don't say anything, Tom. Travis, can you tell us the name of the woman who starred as Lucy? I cannot. Nope. Wow. Really? I cannot. Think about oh, that. Wow. What if we told you her first name was Lucille? Could you tell us her second name? Nope. Really? <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Have you, is this not, is this not the apex moment for you this week of feeling old? Oh, there's it is, lots. It is uh, for know, me. Well, well, 
my 20, I have a 24-year-old nephew that lives with me, so he makes me feel old a lot of stuff like this. That's why I knew he wouldn't know. My nephew never I'm like, all the time I'm shocked at people he's ever heard of. Well, and here's so, the problem. Podcasts are mostly consumed by young people, so anybody yeah. that's listened this far will probably be like, don't make fun of him. He's That's normal. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what this voodoo you're speaking of is with the Ricardos, but... Uh, well, listen, on that note, speaking of which, we have kept you an awfully long time, Tom. So uh, we just can't tell you how much we appreciate well, you. you making time I'd enjoy to spend it. This part of your day. Yeah, it's uh, we get a lot of joy out of yeah. this. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely hearing the old stories of shooting pool with Barack Obama. Yeah. No doubt. That is, yeah, that's that's amazing. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah. Just incredible. Well, it's been a blast. Thank you for spending a good portion of your day with us. And uh, thanks for all the partnership, frankly. You and I are getting ready to enter our, with a short break for you. This will be our 21st session together. And uh, very much enjoyed it and appreciate all the... uh, the accessibility, you're always there when we want to visit, and uh, today is no exception. So well, thank you for that. Well, thank you. This was great. You bet. Enjoyed it. Well, BHL listeners, thank you for tuning in. We hope you would enjoyed this, and we will catch you on the next episode of the BHL Podcast. Mm-hmm.